Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 130 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I have a conversation with Marine Corps combat veteran and law enforcement officer Joseph Smarrow. Joe is a highly sought-after mental health policy and training consultant. Joe has de-escalated hundreds of crisis situation in the field. Joe has de-escalated hundreds of crisis situations in the field with zero uses of force. He is regarded as one of the best crisis intervention team instructors in the nation. Joe has been instrumental in the mental health advocacy and law enforcement policy at all levels of government to include the White House and the Department of Justice. In this episode, we talk a lot about the intersection between veteran and first responder mental health and the need to use all resources to tackle the complex problem of mental health in our community. The problem is, is I'm not a licensed therapist. And so I think right away there's like this, eh, you know, some pushback of what qualifications do you have? And I think we we really get caught up on worrying about qualifications or classifications or a worthiness. And instead of just thinking like, why can't we just be people helping people? Uh, we get caught up in the circle of you have to be this type of person to help this type of person. And so again, it, it kind of minimizes the available resources. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Uh, one of the biggest things, I guess, that I've noticed in my 13 years now of, um, of being in law enforcement is the percentage of people that go from military into law enforcement or first responder roles and the the problem with how the military at least historically has handled wellness one of the issues i've seen that i think is is one of the problems that we face is in the in the military people who um either are identified or self-identify as you know being suicidal for example um, they quickly become non-deployable. The status changes. They kind of get, you know, put in timeout, right? Heavily marginalized, and then um, all the way to being pushed out, right, and given medical or or whatever the case is. So then they come into law enforcement where they're told, "Hey, you know, we're here to help out. Speak up if you have an issue," and they're probably thinking, "No way," right? I mean, because I think the barrier just got bigger. Um, by nature of them being in the military in the past. Not only that, I think one of the other issues is someone who, especially post-2001, right, or 9-11, if, if you have a combat-deployed veteran who then goes into law enforcement, the amount of trauma that they are continuing to face and that accumulative stress uh, really takes a toll. And I think the mindset becomes, well, if I survived combat, you know, I shouldn't have any issues here. I'm tough. I'm strong. I can do this. I'm a warrior. I'm all this stuff. And it really makes the problems kind of that much bigger. 
um, or the fear that much more prevalent from them speaking up and reaching out for help. So uh, those are kind of the big things that, that again, that I've noticed. Um, one of our latest suicides internally on our department was a, an army veteran and uh, incredibly put together guy, you know, double master's degree, real smart, um, but just absolutely. I mean, the, the level of anxiety was so far out of this world. Now he was the one that I was referring to in the, in the Ted talk that I did, um, you know, just unbelievable the amount of stress that he was going through and carrying and the anxiety and no matter how much treatment we got him into, it just didn't seem to matter. Um, we knew it was just a matter of time, which is a sad thing to have to like deal with as someone who's trying to help somebody. Um, and then just yesterday I helped a retired firefighter who, um, again, just complete mess, but 38 years of service, four years military in the army, four years as a police officer, and then 30 years, uh, with the fire department and just completely isolated by himself, you know, 60 years old, like all kinds of medical issues now, um, and just not in a safe space. And it's, it's a sad kind of reality of how normal that story is, you know, for so many people who, you know, invest their entire career into being a first responder or a helper. And then when it's finally said and done, how quickly things kind of, you know, fall apart for them. Um, and I think that's probably both uh, military and first responders because there's such a, you know, family oriented type system or a nobody would understand. And so we have such a small unit, you know, and if you're not actively engaged or plugged into services or with different groups, then it's very easy to find yourself on an island. You're exactly right. Um, and I've said this before, although not maybe in this um, uh, in this depth in, in Regular listeners to the show know that my father was a Vietnam veteran. What they don't often know is that he um, got out of uh, Vietnam. He was an MP. He was in the stockade, um, a stockade guard in at uh, Leonard Wood. Uh, then he was a St. Louis city cop in the 70s, right? And so we don't know where, you know, Vietnam ended and the streets began, right? Uh, um, uh, where the trauma from one to the other, and, and this is so common. I, I have troops of mine, I think three or four of my troops that I deployed with uh, became police officers or first responders and stuff like that. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting that you see or that you talk about that compounding of trauma that on top of what what veterans might have experienced overseas, and you were a veteran yourself, um, what you experienced from the military versus what you see on the force or, or, or in the fire department. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, I was in a training just a couple weeks ago and, and they said that they did this longitudinal study and they, they said that on average, a, a first responder in law enforcement who has a 20 year career responds or is personally involved with 188 traumatic events, 188 traumatic events over a 20 year span. And the average civilian that's never been in the military or first responder, it's like 1.7 in a 20 year period, you know? So it's, it's knowing that the, the numbers, knowing the, the science, knowing the research, it's like, Oh, that makes sense. Like, okay. Uh, and I think that's what we have to do a better job of is really normalizing the fact that, Hey, nobody really expects us probably except for ourselves to have it all together. Um, if, if we, if we did a better job promoting, uh, the reality of what it is that we do on a daily basis, I think, you know, there's so much rhetoric out there and, and, you know, it's, it's very easy for a media story to um, go viral if it's someone doing something wrong, right? We know that negative news sells fast. Um, but I think, you know, just kind of as a, as a profession, we need to do a better job of touting our successes and we need to do a better job of talking about the good that we're doing. But also we need to be more transparent and authentic when it comes to the struggles that we have, right? And that's kind of one of the gaps is we know when officers are in trouble. We sometimes know when they do things really well. We almost never know when they're responding to these horrific incidents and when they're responding to them um, over and over and over. And 
And I think that's where we really fall short and need to do a better job of tracking those um, situations and finding ways to, uh, and again, it's not, it's not to punish or, um, you know, put consequences on an officer just because they're in a, you know, maybe a high crime area or they're in an area that sees a lot of action. Um, I know there's lots of schools of thought out there on all of that. Um, but again, it's just acknowledging the fact that like, hey, the fact that you are responding to this much stuff, uh, it, it would be absolutely okay and accepted. And we're going to kind of encourage you slash nudge you to uh, get, get some help or talk to somebody. Um, one of the programs I heard about when I was at a symposium up in New York at NYPD was this uh, 21020 principle that one of these agencies is doing, I thought was incredible. So at two, and it's a smaller agency, right? And so that's one of the other issues too, is, you know, San Antonio, we've got 2,300 officers, seventh largest city. Um, so a smaller agency that only has 30, 40 people, you know, it's easier to do things like this, but, but the 210, 20 principle, I really liked it. And at two years, they bring in every officer and they give them uh, like financial literacy, uh, at, at 10 years, they bring them back and they do a training on like uh, wellness, uh, diet and exercise, nutrition, you know, uh, resiliency. And then at 20 years, they send them away to this retreat where they'll get, they'll actually all do EMDR to process 20 years of trauma, uh, which is incredible. Again, how do you do something like that for these larger agencies? Right. Okay. right. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting, especially hearing it from the outside, right? So, so I didn't get out. Um, I was a cop's son, sure, um, which um, my father, I relate more as a father, as a law enforcement officer, because he was in security most of his life. Um, and, and so seeing that as the son of a, of a, a law enforcement officer um, and, and seeing then also what Vietnam did to him and, and to us, really. But looking from the outside, we don't see the conversation around first responder mental health. We are having this national conversation around veteran mental health. Um, as we're recording this just recently, there was the, the, the House Veterans Affairs Committee hearing on the veteran, the parking lot suicides and stuff like that. And so we're having this national conversation around veteran mental health, but the public is not having a national conversation around first responder mental health. Um, in, in your unique in, in your role as a crisis intervention officer. Right. And so, and that's, Again, several years ago, that became a personal passion of mine uh, because I realized, you know, we're getting a lot of publicity for the work that we're doing here. And I thought, you know, it, it you know, we, we have a saying that, you know, we're a, we're an overnight success that took 13 years to get to. Um, but because we've gotten so much attention here in Bear County, San Antonio for the work that we've done, a lot of people have kind of come here, they've traveled here to look at our ways to see how we collaborate, who we collaborate with. And so I, I, I kind of had this epiphany of, you know, there's so many people that are coming here to try and figure out better ways to do it. You know, what are they missing? And so I was asked to do these, uh, they call them tours, but whenever people come in from other states and they, and they want to come look at our, at our resources or crisis center or whatever, they have me come in and speak for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, just about the law enforcement role and how we collaborate with the mental health authority and why that's important. And so there was so much work being done about preparing cops for being better equipped or trained to deal with the public. And that's what CIT is, right? It's all about preparing the officer to better handle the community, preparing an officer, giving, giving them education so that they can go and deescalate a situation, minimize use of force incidents, and serve the community. But, but there's just not enough being done for how do we serve ourselves, right? And so that was one of the things, even as our mental health unit, that we didn't take into account. You know, it was very easy for us to go, yeah, we want to go actually help people out. We want to go out into the field. We want to deescalate situations, get them into treatment, follow up with them once they're discharged and see if we can really impact their life. And it wasn't until we got our call for like, hey, we need you to go and respond to this active duty officer. And we're like, what? Like suddenly we're not equipped for this. And it was very uncomfortable, but it's quickly become a big part of what we do. And I mean, to the point now where we're doing, I mean, anywhere from 15 to 25 um, responses a year 
for just our department. And, but officers are getting more and more comfortable with talking to us and reaching out to us and calling us directly. And, and so that's, again, that's something that we are proud of is the fact that they're coming to us directly, but we, it's such a small percentage, right? The, the latest thing I saw was that 10% of every agency, 10% is struggling with severe to moderate uh, or moderate to severe depression. I think that's conservative. Um, again, I think just doing this job, there's there's no way that 90% of them are good to go and, and uh, healthy minded, as you would say. Uh, and because again, knowing what I've seen, you know, we don't, we don't have the healthiest coping mechanisms. You know, we don't deal with things uh, in the best ways. Uh, we we drink more than we should. We get hooked on pain pills or different, um, you know, medications more than we should. We are terrible at personal relationships. And, and it's just like I train an officer in CIT. Our eyes deceive us, right? Our eyes lie to us. And if we, in police work, if we only focus on the behavior, so you see someone doing something wrong, you punish them, you, there's a consequence, you go to jail, you didn't really affect anything, right? You didn't really change anything. If we really spend time getting to the surface or the foundation of what got them to that behavior, that's where we can truly affect change. And I think it's the same thing in law enforcement. We're so quick to punish behavior, but what if we spent a moment and said, why is this behavior happening? Right? Especially if you're dealing with a 10-year officer that's had a great track record, no complaints, showing up on time, and then suddenly there's a rapid decrease, and we're like, hey, let's just punish it because he violated this policy, this general manual, this whatever. But what if we pulled him aside and said, hey, we noticed that something's going on, talk to us. you know. And the next step is we're going to support you, and we're going to help you out and give you what you need because you're a valuable asset to us. That's the problem. And then one of the bigger gaps is these agencies will come forward and say, hey, we support this. We love mental health. Yes, we want our officers to speak up, but there, there's zero policy to support that. And so the moment an officer, and I only know this firsthand from my business side where I go out and do consulting and training, is I'll have officers come up to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, but I know I cannot go tell my agency because this is exactly what's going to happen based on previous incidents with other people. And I'm like, yeah, that's a problem, right? But they're here. They're paying us to come and do this training. So the optics are good, right? The optics are we care. But really, again, CIT is all about preparing you to serve the community. It's not about preparing you to deal with yourself. And so I think more to your point needs to be done in that arena. Now, as I'm as I'm hearing you, I'm listening from a from a veteran standpoint. Um, the idea, uh, exactly that. We don't have the healthiest relationships. We get hooked on the painkillers, and and there are so many similarities between first responder mental health and veteran mental health. And as you said, how veterans then transition that um, into the law enforcement. Uh, so you were a Marine or are a Marine yourself. Um, how did that transition happen for you? And, and was this mental health aspect always something that you were interested in? Or is it something you emerged into? So um, it's interesting. M my life has not been uh, ideal from any point. So um, when I was seven, eight years old, uh, my, my father was in the Navy and he was on a deployment out of Virginia and, uh, and my, my mother had an affair and, and I, I read, this is all in the documentary that's out now. And, and, uh, so again, I, I'm very open about my life because again, I think it's important that people realize I'm not unique. The only thing that's really different about me is I'm willing to talk about it to help someone else. So my mother had an affair and the guy she was having an affair with was uh, sexually molesting me. Well, my sister ended up calling my dad's mom in New York and she got a hold of my dad. My dad came home, emergency leave. It was a mess. And then there was custody battles, court, all this stuff. So I went to a new school about every year or two years. I lived with multiple different family members um, and I left home at 15. And so I ended up moving in with my girlfriend and her parents and Naturally, as a teenage boy would do, I got her pregnant my senior year of high school. So then I was like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Uh, I wanted to go to college and play soccer. But that didn't happen. So my buddy was in the delayed entry program. He uh, said, hey, come talk to the Marine Corps recruiter. And I was like, all right. So I did, and he did a great job, uh, sold me the world. I was guaranteed to be on the East Coast in a non-deployable unit, and um I finished boot camp, went to school, and I was in 
Camp Pendleton, California, and an infantry <laughs> unit. And uh, so then 9-11 happens. We get deployed. And I remember being over there thinking, because right after 9-11, we went to Afghanistan. And it was pretty uneventful. We did a bunch of different helo ops, flying in, doing security, doing some convoy, flying back to the ship. Fly into Afghan, fly back to the ship. And it was like day on, day off. And nothing really happened. And we ended up coming home. A couple months later, we go back. And now we're in Kuwait. And I'm thinking, this is a waste. We're not going to do anything again. And then March 19th, you know, Bush gave the green light. And so we were going. And I was like, well, this is really happening. And I'm a 19-year-old kid, you know. And I remember that first day, we went in at night up Highway 1. And when sunlight came, and I just saw, like, mayhem. I mean, like, just burnt bodies, blown up vehicles, burnt. I mean, just everything just completely devastated. And I remember thinking very early in my, in my tour in Iraq of like this, like I don't belong here. And like, what the hell is going on? You know, it was very surreal. It was hard. Your mind cannot process what you're doing. Right. As a 19, 20 year old kid, you just can't. Right. You look at you're watching apocalypse now and it's a movie until you're in the middle of until you smell it taste right hear it feel it yeah you're scared for your life absolutely and then that is over and over and over and over um and then i got back and i was married at the time and um but again things weren't well i wasn't well we moved here to texas uh from california and within six months i was divorced um i didn't know what i was going to do you know as a 22 year old without a degree uh two deployments um, I was stuck, you know, and, and one of my buddies was like, well, why don't you try out for SAPD, you know, and they have pretty good pay. And I'm like, I don't want to be a cop. Like I had no desire to do that, but it was good pay for someone who didn't have a degree. And I was like, let me see what happens. So I tested, I applied, I get in and I'm like, all right. So I go to the Academy, I drink the Kool-Aid and I graduate. And within about two years, I was thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, this just isn't me, you know, like something's off. Like, I just don't feel right. Um, I didn't feel super passionate about what I was doing. And I remember going through this training, the CIT training, and it really resonated with me of like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't realize cops could do this type of work. And then when we actually had a unit open, I put in for it. I got it. And that's why I've been here ever since. And, you know, the downside for me is if you want to promote, you get pushed out of the unit. And so it's like I'm kind of stuck being a patrolman because if I want to advance in my career, I get taken out of mental health, which I have no desire to go out and do other police work type stuff, you know. So um, I would say this is something that really um, kind of fell in my lap on divine timing. But also I knew I've been I've been a consumer since I was seven years old. I've been in and out of therapy. I didn't go to third grade my first time around because I was in therapy three days a week. Uh, So I got held back. Uh, I still actively go to therapy today. And so I knew that my first several years on the unit, it was very easy for me to relate to the people that I was helping in mental health, especially the veterans. But I also realized that I was probably not super equipped to deal with specific cases because kids with children, uh, you know, having to pull a 15 year old off of a, a, a clothes bar in his closet because he hung himself and his mom couldn't get him down. Um, and dealing with veterans, you know, those calls really hurt me for a while, which is why I stay active in my services, which is why I still go to therapy every two to four weeks. Um, because I need, I need an opportunity to process and vent that stuff. Um, and it was interesting. I had eight years in law enforcement and my therapist said, you realize being a cop was the worst thing you could have done. Like it was the worst profession you could have got into. And I was like, yeah, now I realize that. But again, what what he was talking about was just compounding trauma. And he was like, you're surrounded by triggers. You're you're never going to be able to get through or get over because you're constantly surrounded by triggers. And my first year on the department, um, uh, this guy, he punched me in the face and we we got into a fight. Nothing came off of my Sam Brown, my belt. Um, We've just I was basically grappling for a little over seven minutes and he died. And so it was an in-custody death for me. And I remember thinking like back to Iraq of like the first time I had shot someone in Iraq and I saw them go down, I was so 
terrified and felt incredibly guilty. And when I just wanted to like hide and shut down, I remember a gunnery sergeant came up to me and he was like slapping me on the Kevlar and shaking me and like, Uras, like Semper Fi, we're like proud and happy. And I'm like, yeah, I just, this does not feel like celebrating. And then when I'm on the department and I'm just fighting with a guy and he dies, I'm, I really went into this dark place of like, you know, I, I can't seem to get away from this. And the toll that took on me is, um, I, I got into worse and worse relationships. Um, by 34, I had three divorces. I have five kids from three different women. Um, you know, I pay almost three grand a month in child support and I made life incredibly hard on myself because I refused to believe something was wrong with me. Uh, I thought as long as I had a job, I was gainfully employed. I'm fine. I have a house. I have a job. I have insurance. I'm fine. I'm fine. I look fine. I'm not burnt. I don't have prosthetics, prosthetics. I'm fine. But the mind is a powerful thing. And I think especially veterans, um, we have this belief that because we look okay on the surface, then we have to be okay internally. And, and so it, it, again, it took me almost nine years of getting out of the military to finally step into a VA and say, yeah, like I am broken. Uh, I am acutely suicidal. I fixate on this. Like I just think about killing myself every single day and I know I need help. And so, um, again, through pretty extensive therapy and different treatment, um, you know, I'm at the best place I've ever been, but I know it's, it's not something that just goes away, you know, which is why for me, the work is so important because I think stories matter. And I think every single person has a story. It's just how much of it are you willing to share and how vulnerable are you willing to be? Because we're, we all have fears, right? We're all afraid of something. And, and I think the more we talk about them and the more we open up about them, uh, I think the more we're able to connect with people and realize that we're actually more similar than we are different. And that's where I think power is, is in similarities. And it really does um, kind of mitigate some of that fear uh, to receiving any type of resources or treatment. So, you know, I can, I can imagine how important that is, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking you're, you know, uh, crisis intervention team, um, but you can't stop somebody else's bleeding when you're bleeding all over them, right? I mean, you've got to take care of your own wounds. This is a, you know, uh, first aid 101. We're on the battlefield, you know, bind yourself and, and shoot back before you try to bind your buddy. Um, but, but this idea of the crisis intervention team being community facing, um, where you find yourself, um, treating your buddy's wounds, um, your fellow officer's wounds, um, because they don't have that awareness. You didn't have that awareness until it smacked you in the face with three grand a month and, and you know, five kids with three wives. Um, how, how are you developing that awareness in your fellow officers in San Antonio now before it gets to that post-crisis point? Well, that, that's the struggle still. And, uh, we, we can do a lot of training. We can do, um, there, there's things that I'm doing right now trying to develop to revamp all of it. Uh, peer support, which is important. You know, we have a team of 50 to 75 officers with different ranks um, that are part of our peer support team. But our mental health unit has 13 officers on it now. So having access to to people that you can relate to, again, peer-to-peer is very important. Um, but the, the problem is, Dwayne, is, you know, we can't, just as you said, like I can identify it in somebody, but I can't make them do something they're not willing or ready to do yet. Right. One of the things that we do on the unit is if someone is in crisis in the community and they meet one of three criteria, they're either suicidal, they're homicidal, or they're mentally decompensated to where they don't know what today's date is. They're so psychotic, you know, they're not eating, they're not sleeping. Um, if, if they meet one of those three, three criteria, we can take them against their will and put them in a hospital. But what I know is if I take someone against their will and hospitalize them, there's almost zero chance that they're going to engage in services because they're not at a place of realizing they need help. It's way worse when it comes to actual dealing with first responders. Getting them to believe that they have a problem is incredibly difficult, which is why I feel really proud when, you know, it's sad, but I feel pride when an officer calls me and says, Hey man, I drink about 20 to 25 beers every day when I get home from work. 
Um, I'm a drunk. I know I'm showing up to work drunk. I need help. Or when I have a supervisor call me and say, crying his eyes out, saying, Joe, I just gave my gun to my wife. Like, I'm afraid. I'm going to kill myself. I don't know what's wrong. Something's wrong. I need help. They're calling me because I am the one standing up in front of all the rooms. I'm the one standing up at training. I'm the one standing up saying, hey, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way, right? You can't stay in your funk. You can, but you know what's going to happen, right? It's a choice. And I, and I tell them every opportunity I get, which is, the, which is why you know, we have annual in-service training. Every officer has to go through 40 hours of training. So we try and carve out a piece of that each year and, and do outreach. And we, when we tell the officers, you know, if, if you speak up and tell us you need help, we can almost guarantee we're going to put you on a path to success and get you back to work. If you get found out and behavior starts to manifest and then the chief's office is calling us, telling us to go help you, it's too late because we know that you're not going to want the help at that point. You're just going to go through checking boxes. And we've seen this time and time and time again, officers that were forced to help do not do well because they don't, they're not bought into it, right? They don't actually want the treatment. They don't want anything, or they're so afraid that supervisor I was just telling you about told me, he said, Joe, if anyone finds out about this, I'll retire that same day. I'll quit. If anyone finds out and, and people are, yeah. And, and lose his support network and, and be in even more of a critical place than he was before. Absolutely. Right. And, and so I tried telling him like, or right perspective matters, like, or you could get well and then be a champion for the next person. Right. Which is exactly what I try and do. Again, understanding that sometimes I still have bleeding wounds that aren't quite scars or scabs yet. Um, but I know when I need to call my timeouts, you know, I know when I'm, I'm reaching my threshold, but I think with other people, they, they need to, it's, it's so hard getting them over that first step because, you know, we don't, because we don't go and tell everybody, Hey, we helped so-and-so today. Hey, did you hear about officer so-and-so? Like we don't talk about any of it because of confidentiality. So anytime we help an officer, it's always the first time in their mind, right? They're thinking you guys have never done this before. No one would get it. I'm the only one that's ever felt this way. And we're like, you have no idea, right? I mean, this is all the time. So it's just, it's matter, it's a matter of getting them to believe in, uh, to buy in, um, and then to speak up. But again, I, I think we really need to take a look at mandating yearly mental health checks. Um, I think that's a good idea. A lot of people don't, but for me, I think it would be fantastic if we mandated, uh, annual mental health checks for first responders. And again, if they want to come in and say all is well, great, but it gives someone an opportunity to speak up. You know, there's a couple of things there. Um, uh, I, we had a guest on the show that she was actually at MCRD um, in San Diego, um, and um, the the command there, everybody from the gen commanding general on down, was filed into her unit uh, or into her office um, and and spent 15 minutes with her. Some of them were were okay, you know. Others said, you know, okay, we're going to pass you along to this next uh, uh, to this next level, right? Because once you get behind closed doors and you see it, obviously from your standpoint, and I as a therapist, once you get behind closed doors and then the reality comes out, and and even there's that shame of no, this is the place where you're able to do that. Um, but but you're not a therapist. You're, you're not a mental health professional. You are not a licensed therapist. And, and you're talking about a couple of different things. One is peer support, immensely important, either if you're a cop or a firefighter to firefighter or, or a paramedic to paramedic, chaplain to chaplain, right? Any kind of, um, you know, peer, just like veteran to veteran, uh, but also this gatekeeper training, the idea of um, providing the individuals who are more likely to get in contact with a law enforcement officer or a veteran in crisis, giving them the tools because they're more likely to come in contact with you before they come in contact with me or a psychiatrist or a social yeah. worker. Right. Yeah. Which, which is again, why, why the, you know, and, and we, we kind of joke about it, but we say we're, we're essentially armed social workers. Um, we realize that we're not licensed therapists. We realize that, um, you know, one one of my partners says though, and it's not to be offensive, you know, to to any licensed therapist, but he he says, you know, he goes, I I venture to say that we are better equipped to deal with people in a mental health crisis than licensed clinicians or psychiatrists because we meet them where they are 
in their homes, in their environments where it's absolutely chaotic. And then we have to de-escalate them. We have to create a nice tight package and then deliver them to the doctor. And it's like, here you go. They're calmed. They're de-escalated. They're in a better space. They're ready to talk now because of the last hour I just spent with them. And, and again, it's equally important, but, but I think to your point, they're right. The, the training is so important that, which is why I have a problem with the mindset. There, there's two camps on CIT. One is it's absolutely not for every officer. It should only be 10 to 15% of each agency, and it should only be volunteer-based officers that want to go through this training. Those are the ones that should get it. I don't agree with that because we don't get to pick and choose what calls we go on. And unless unless a call comes out and you as an officer can say, you know what, dispatch, like, no, thanks. I'll pass. Give me the next one. Ah, no, thanks. Give me the next one. We don't have that luxury. So why do we have the luxury to say, you know what, that crisis intervention training where it's basically going to help me be a better communicator, it's going to give me awareness, it's going to give me education, it's going to allow me to better identify someone in a mental health crisis. I don't need that training. I think it's ridiculous. I think every single first responder, police, EMS, fire needs to go through 40 hours of CIT at a minimum. Because again, the the training is only for identification purposes. And it, if it's done well, uh, there's some trainings out there that sadly are not really uh, that great. But, but a good training is really just going to give you the tools to identi- identify an illness early on and know how to communicate with someone when they're in crisis. That's it. And it really goes against a lot of what police training is, if you will. It's not tactics based. My tactics are very much in my mind. But if you saw me on a call, you would think I've lost my mind, right? You would think, like, why is he sitting down with him? Why is he shaking his hand? Why is he so close? Why is he kneeling down? Why? Like, I make tactical compromises to gain rapport, but I always do it calculating the risk. And it's always when I have a partner and it's always, you know, after I know that I've built some rapport with somebody. But I've gotten almost 10 years of dealing with some very, very sick people and, and not having use of force. I think that kind of speaks volumes to how important the training is, you know, whether it's talking people off things, talking people with knives, talking people with guns, talking people out of their worst moment without having to utilize force, without having to tase them, without having to fight them because you connect with them, because you take the time and make effort to build rapport and relate to them. And, and again, I think that's why I'm able to do that good job is because I can genuinely relate to a lot of people. Uh, again, not necessarily like a psychotic disorder, but most of the people we're dealing with, um, it's some type of situational behavior, situational depression, um, or they're suicidal. And, and that's stuff that most everyone can relate to if they're willing. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and again, as I'm listening to this from a veteran standpoint and in, in dealing in, in the veteran community, um, the, that caseworker that's helping with veteran homelessness, they're, they're just focusing on homelessness and that behavioral health stuff is something that somebody else does, right? I'm going to leave that to somebody else. Um, same thing if they're looking for employment, but if I can't look an employer in the eye and if I can't, you know, speak above a whisper or something like that, then, oh, then I, I hand you off to this mental health professional. Whereas, <laughs> The, the psychological wellness and you talked about just just the the military aspect to well-being versus the um now veterans transitioning into the force um it's the foundation of everything else it's it's not an additional duty it is the duty right yeah no i, I like that and and again it's it's um it's unfortunate when people don't realize that you know um wh- when people and again, it's 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 so unique and it's so hard because there's so much difference. It's one of those things where I'm very confused about, um, you know, I've I've never liked the idea of law enforcement being a paramilitary organization. Uh, I think they're they have to be different. They have to be uh, just by the 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 mission of what they are, right? Military, all of our missions, if you will, are on foreign land. We do a lot of training here, but all of our missions are in foreign land. So we prepare to go to these other places, foreign countries, and fight wars, in essence, to protect homeland, right? In law enforcement, I think agencies that really 
love to promote that we're a paramilitary, we're paramilitary, I think is dangerous. And I don't think it's a good idea. I never have. Uh, I think we need to really get away from that and say, yes, like while if if you are a veteran and you want to become a first responder, you have excellent qualifications. But it's but it ha- you have to adopt a different mindset. You just have to. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps and they prepared me uh, for combat, 9-11 happened and they sent me to combat. In the police department, believe it or not, most police agencies in this country prepare you for combat. That doesn't quite happen. And are there dangerous people out there? Yes. Do officers get killed and ambushed? Yes. But look at the percentages. Look at the facts. The facts are the number one killer of law enforcement in this country year after year after year is law enforcement. We kill ourselves three to one versus, yeah, we, we, we die by suicide three to one versus being killed by a violent person, a violent felon three to one. But, but we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about the dangers of the job. We want to talk about how scary the job is. We don't want to talk about, Hey, the reality is because of cumulative stress, because of compounding trauma, you are the greatest risk to yourself. And so what do you do with that information? You know, you, that puts me in mind, I, and I think I, I might have talked about this with Vic Dufoli, the, um, uh, the law enforcement officer who became a mental health professional. But, but I heard somebody say one time that it's, um, uh, you know, when, I, when you were deployed, when I was deployed, we deployed and then we came back. Um, but for law enforcement officers, it's like 365 mini deployments, right? You know, it's like you, you – because there is the chance that you might not come home. But that idea of you also have – 365 return to from deployments that one more day that you just survived knowing that, you know, and, and maybe not, it, it isn't this sort of doom and gloom, but this idea of, and, and this is something, and again, I've talked about this before, but my dad was, was, was exactly like this. He said, I was, I was a hero, quote unquote, during the day. And all I could think about was going home until I could shove something up my nose. Right. And, and this was, and, and he said that it was this horrible double life that he lived for so long that uh that that is just compounding and and who's checking on that uh that supervisor when he gets back to the house unless unless it's a peer or unless it's supervisor himself right and 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 yeah and that's one of the biggest gaps as well is is mid-management because it's easy for a police chief or a sheriff to buy into all this um you know from the throne, if you will, it's easy for them to sit up top and say, Hey, you know, this is great. We're going to adopt these programs. It's easy to mandate training down in the bottom level, get your patrol officers in there, your deputies in there, but that mid management where they feel they have an obligation or a responsibility to be well, to deal with the troops problems. Well, who's going to be there to deal with their problems. And that's one of the things that I liked about the, the symposium I was at in New York is one of the chiefs, um, he, he was a chief and he's like 45 years of law enforcement experience, but he said, Hey, who's going to check on us, right? Like, what about us? And I'm like, yes, amen. You know? And I, I think that's one of the, one of the other issues I have with, with people who believe paramilitary is this hierarchy in the military. It makes sense to me in law enforcement. Yes, you have ranks, but you shouldn't have the same type of structure or rules or boundaries. You know, in the Marine Corps, if I wanted to file something or run something up, I had to go through my chain of command. In in law enforcement, we really should be able to blur those lines a little bit more. And if I want to check on a captain or if I want to talk to my sergeant or a deputy chief, like, so what what your rank is, right? Like, what if your just first name is and I'm worried about you because? Like, so what? But that makes people uncomfortable. They're like, I can never do that, right? They're a superior. They're my, they're my boss. I can never check on them. And, and we have all this like, chatter that we buy into or we believe um based on what i don't even know but but that double life you talked about is absolutely accurate there's so many people that they go to work and that's their safety that's their safe haven but it's also the thing that's making everything else worse Uh, because the moment they leave there they feel completely vulnerable they feel entirely exposed they feel um absolutely unsafe unless they're in uniform on duty around their own people, that's where they're home. And then it's when they leave there where they become most at risk. And again, I mean, and I've known this and just the parallels between um, 
uh, veteran mental health and law enforcement. I mean, everything you could have just said, you know, a deputy chief in, in place of sergeant major, and it would have been exactly the same thing, right? And 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 the parallels are so critical um, that that perhaps some of the things that that you're doing in San Antonio with your mental health unit. Um, uh, can be taught to a lot of the veteran serving organizations to be able to impact the same thing. Right. Absolutely. And that's, um, again, identifying that about a year ago, I, I put that on the radar for how can I get into like VAs or how, how can I find like a track where I can get in and deal with like veteran specific groups. Uh, but again, to your point, the problem is, is I'm not a licensed therapist. And so I think right away there's like this, eh, you know, some pushback of what qualifications do you have? And I think we, we really get caught up on worrying about, and I, and I, again, I think people need to be vetted. Yes. Um, but I think we get caught up on, worrying about qualifications or classifications or a worthiness and instead of just thinking like why can't we just be people helping people uh, we get caught up in the circle of you have to be this type of person to help this type of person and and so again it it kind of minimizes the available resources because we're, we're looking for such a specific target group to deal with a specific target group um but for me, again, it, it, I'm fortunate to be a veteran and a first responder, and I know that when I'm doing like my business gigs, people respond to that, right? They're like, hey, I like these guys because they get it. My business partner was in the Marine Corps with me. So we served in uh, the Marine Corps together, in combat together, and now we're on the police department together, um, and, and he's my business partner. And so people really take to that. Uh, from the first responder field because they're like, hey, yeah, th these guys have credibility because they're combat veterans and they're police officers still. So I am going to listen to them. When we bring in outside speakers, subject matter experts, actual psychiatrists to talk, they're like, this guy doesn't get it. Uh, good, good presentation, but he doesn't understand. And I'm like, so, so it's, it's so difficult, you know, to, to reach these audiences. Um, Unless you just, you, again, you got to have the right person uh, and, and it's, it's hard to always find that. And, in you know, in, and I'm hearing it's hard, it's got to be a burden, right? I mean, and it's a burden that you're, you're willingly sharing. Um, you haven't even, I think, touched the surface of some of the transparency um, that you've had. You, the TED talk, it is the first thing that uh, when you reached out to me and you said, Hey, here's my TED talk. And I think the the first line, I didn't even get past the first line. I'm like sold. I, I need you on the show just because the the honesty and the transparency. Um, people are hearing you. Where can they find more of your message? You, you mentioned a documentary. I, I saw some some news articles. Um, you're just trying to get this message out there. Where's it at? So uh, the documentary is going to be big, and and right now it's just doing film festivals. Um, I've been fortunate to. Um, get booked to speak. I'm going to, so I'm going to be a, uh, keynote speaker in Illinois at their statewide CIT conference in June, June 3rd, um, Las Vegas Metro PD, uh, their director of their EAP program just reached out to me and they're going to fly me out. They want me to speak to their officers because, uh, they've got a lot of officers who are struggling with the uh, Mandalay Bay incident, um, with, with one suicide. And so they're, they're having me come out there and talk to them. You know, the, the Ted talk was one of the best things that could have happened to me. What's sad is, you know, again, it's, you know how it works. I'm not getting paid on it. Uh, that was time I volunteered to do, but when I log in and look at it, I'm like, man, there's only like, I don't know, last count was like 1,800. So I'm like, there's only 1800 views. Like I wish there was 10 million. Why not selfishly? Because I just, I based on the 1800 views that I've had so far, it's been a, incredible the amount of messages I've got, support I've got, people who have reached out to me I've got, people who have asked me to come and talk. You know, it's led to how do we grow this message, just like you're asking me right now. So I think as the views continue to go up with that, if I can just find the right person to help share it or grow it, um, come on, Oprah Winfrey. Um, but, but dude, I thought you were talking about me, but yeah, you're right. Oh, I, yeah, I'm yeah, not come Oprah. On, Wayne, help me out. Help me out. <laughs> not Oprah. But, uh, 
but no. So, um, and then the documentary again, because it's been closed and it's just doing festivals right now, uh, there are early talks and it's not public information yet, but, um, we're pretty excited about the, uh, the group that's going to be picking it up most likely. And we're looking at a November, December possible nationwide release of it. Um, the, the two festivals we've done so far, South by Southwest and international film festival in Boston just last weekend, have been incredible. Uh, both of them, we won awards at, and the audience um, is blown away, crying. You know, just the, the way it's impacting them is incredibly profound. And one of the best takeaways for me from this last one was a guy came up to me at the after party, and he goes, "You know, Joe," uh, and he introduced himself, and he said, uh, "He goes, I'm an architect." And I said, okay. And he said, yeah, I'm, it's a form of art. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm allowed to be in my fields. And I was like, right. And he goes, you're a freaking Marine and a cop. And you just put in a movie all the things you just put out there. Like, what the hell? I have no excuse. And he said, I'm telling you right now, I've never told anyone other than my parents and my wife I've never told anyone else this, but I've been diagnosed with a mental illness and nobody knows except for those three people. And I'm coming up and telling you a complete stranger because I have no excuse after watching your movie. And I said, that makes it all worth like that right there makes it worth it to me. I didn't ask prying questions. I didn't ask why, but the fact that he was willing to take a, a risk and step outside of his comfort zone based on what he saw, it, it just makes it makes the whole thing worth it, you know, cause that was, it was intrusive. It was over two years of filming. I went through a divorce during the filming. Um, so, you know, f to have people respond the way they are has really uh, been uplifting for me. And so I'm just hoping that the momentum and the traction will continue to grow. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, processing a, a book, trying to, uh, put a book out I, by the end of the year, just cause I think with the movie and everything, I think that'll help. And again, however I can share my message, uh, because I am passionate about this and people are so taken aback by the fact that I am a police officer um, and a Marine, you know, and they're like, what? But I think like, yeah, thank God that I am because just to that guy's point, like you have no excuse, teacher, right? Coach, fireman, sergeant librarian, major, sergeant major, colonel, right? Corporal, come on. There's no excuse. And we, we can't let fear be a barrier to, to our, our wellness. We just can't do it. And I think too many people end up dying by suicide because they're so afraid of facing the unknown. What if I say I need help? What if I put my hand out and nobody grabs it? What if no one can relate to me? And, you know, we just I, – I think the more we can – normalize this, which is why one of the things I'm privately pushing is uh, I, I think we should teach mental health in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I think it needs to be in every public school system. I think it needs to be a part of their curriculum. Um, we need to be normalizing mental health because more and more kids are getting more and more uh, issues early on and they have no clue what's happening. And I think we need to really have these talks early on and then maybe in a generation or two this will all be obsolete and everyone will be just walking around hugging each other. I don't know. One can hope. <laughs> it's a dream, man. It's a dream. So if, if people want to reach out and that's what you want them to do, where can they find you? How can they contact you to be able to hear more about what you're doing? Yeah. So the, uh, the website, I actually just had it all revamped. And so solutionpointplus.com. So www.solutionpointplus, all spelled out.com. Um, and, my contact info is on there. My phone number is on there. My email is on there. Uh, the TED Talk is on there. So um, I'm proud of the website. Again, just had it redone this week. And so I would love if people would go on there, check it out. They can reach out to me on email. Um, and then also we have links to all of our social media sites as well. That's great, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, Dwayne, thank you. I appreciate you reaching out. I'm glad we finally made it happen. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health.
that conversation with Joe didn't leave you, then you might be listening to the wrong show. Just the story about the architect coming up to him after watching the documentary saying, I have no excuse to hide behind fear is impactful. Police chiefs calling him up and saying, I just gave my gun to my wife, and if this gets out, I'm retiring immediately, represents the complicated situation. We talked a lot about law enforcement and first responder mental health and the parallels to military and veteran mental health. The impact of the things that service members and their families faced don't stop once they get out of the military. I know that. My wife knows that. The people I work with know that. Joe is part of the San Antonio Police Department's Mental Health Unit, an outreach unit that manages the crisis intervention team for the city and develops partnership with mental health consumers, their families, and the public in order to address mental health challenges in the community. One report indicates that the Mental Health Unit has helped divert 100,000 people from jail or emergency rooms. The documentary about he and his partner, Ernie and Joe, has screenings from Massachusetts and Colorado in July and August. You can see more at ErnieAndJoeTheFilm.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST130. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at VeteranMentalHealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a while, but you can get it now along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. To check it out, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.